0: Can you think of an opportunity, a moment in your life in which you were not prepared? Welcome to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast. We hope that the message today encourages you. For additional resources to inspire you in your journey with Christ, connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. Enjoy today's podcast. are glad you're here with us this morning. My name is Derek Skinner. I'm the high school minister here at Plainfield Christian. If you're joining us online, we're glad to have you as well. Hopefully we get to see you in person here soon. I will explain this in a second. Noah, I see you laughing. I will explain this in a second, but beforehand, I want to ask you a question. Repeat after me, if you would, this question. Are you ready? Ready? Are you ready? One more time. Are you ready? Can you think of an opportunity, a moment in your life in which you were not prepared. What is the motto of the Boy Scouts of America? To always be prepared. Can you think of a time in your life when you were not prepared? Maybe it's even waking up this morning. I was not ready for that alarm clock. Could be something as small as this. Can you think of a time in your life where you were not prepared for what was to come? For many the first time I can think of a big moment in your life might be this, when you first start having kids. Are you prepared for that? I think I can remember in being in the delivery room. I'm just like, what are you doing? How are you doing this? How are you doing this? I was not ready for a lot of things, right? You're not ready for it. Matter of fact, you may get this book. You may get this book. If you're expecting kids, you'll see it up here. What to expect when you're expecting. We had three copies of this book. I don't know what that means, but we had three of them. And it's all to help you get ready for something that honestly you may not be prepared for. Here's another one. For me and my family, one of the things that this book does not describe is how to travel with kids. <laughs> and I tell you, I am not, re- I am, even for me by myself traveling, I'm an over, classic overpacker. Anybody else? You pack things you do not need, and you haven't needed them any time in your life, but on this trip, you make sure it's there. You're taking bear spray with you. You're going to a family reunion. You just never know, you never know. You pack more than you need. I come home with more clean clothes, I feel like at times, from this trip than before. But anyways, you pack more than you need. Now I have three kids who I'm also gonna overpack for to make sure they have enough. We love to go camping. And and when we go camping, we have this five to six person tent, right? Because there's five of us now. By the way, when they say five to six person, they lie. But here's this tent, we make it, we get it all put up. I put in our air, let's the queen air mattress for me and Ashley. Then you have the, the two twin air mattresses for the boys. And then at the time, it was Reagan's pack and play. Got those all in, shoved in. When I stood and stepped out of the door, I looked back, the tent, instead of looking like this, looked like this, Bulging. I could not, as I tried to zip it closed, I couldn't zip it. I had to pull both sides together, zip real quick. Pull both sides, zipper. I broke the zipper twice because of the amount of stuff we brought. We are a two-van camping family. We don't take one car, we take two. And when we leave, it's packed all nice and neat like this. And when we return, it comes back looking like... <laughs> now, let me pause for a second. That was my wife's joke. She wants me to say that. I'm sure she would. I heard it and I started busting up laughing. I got to use it. So, anyways, but we overpacked. Why? Cuz we want to be prepared. I went on a trip with friends when I was in college. We were going down for a cruise on Carnival. 10 of us going on this Carnival cruise. Two rooms. Interior cabins. 5 in this one, 5 in that one. Keep it cheap, baby. We drove down to Atlanta, actually, is it was Athens, Georgia, to pick up a buddy from UGA? And then we drove the rest of the way down West Palm Beach, Atlantic, met somebody there. We're supposed to get on a train to go to Miami. You with me? Athens, West Palm Beach, Miami. We get down to the train and we're running late. Everybody's grabbing their bags, throwing it on. Let's go quick. We gotta go. We gotta go. As we we're getting ready to leave the cars, one of the girls in the group says this Hey, where's my bag? What, you think I don't know that that was wrong? No, I'm just kidding. But that's it. She's like, where's my bag? Where's my bag? She starts panicking because when we met them in Athens, we had switched cars. Her luggage was in Athens, Georgia, instead of down in, you get the idea. You want to talk about somebody who's not prepared? You think you can go on a cruise with no clothes? Think about that one. Unprepared. But there's other moments in our lives when we're unprepared right? Maybe, let's go even before this, let's go when marriage is getting ready to happen. You are getting ready to take a big, giant step for mankind right here, right? And are you ready? Most couples, they spend so much time, months even, preparing for the wedding ceremony, but not much time forever after. and Leslie Parrott, their book, Saving Your Marriage Before It Starts, talks about that same idea. How much time? And can you, you couples out there, Was there ever a moment when you were first married where you're like, oh, I wasn't ready for that? I thought I could dress myself. (laughs) I wasn't ready for that. But maybe it's not. Maybe it's not marriage. Maybe it's some of you getting ready to get a job. Or maybe it's the other end of it for some of you. I see you in this audience who, you know what, I've had a job and I'm ready to step away. And you're asking the question, am I ready to retire? Do I have your meeting with your financial people? Do I have everything lined up so that I can? Dot, dot, dot. Am I ready to retire? There was a survey done and it said 40%. You'll see it here on the screen. 40% of American consumers think winning the lottery could be a good way to fund retirement. Yeah, that sounds great. The odds of that happening, not good. Are you ready to step away and to retire? But here's one that I think is universal that all of us struggle with, and we can prepare as much as we want, but you just, it's hard to be prepared for this. I had a phone call with my father at the beginning of this year. He was working out in the gym with my mom, and as he was on a treadmill, my mom noticed he looked a little pale. Rick, you need to sit down just for a second. He did. They said, well, you know what, it might be good. Your father had had heart issues. When he was in his 70s, you're 67. It might be good for you to get a stress test. And they did, they did the test and they did the heart cath and they saw three of his arteries were blocked, 90, 80, and 70%. No one can compare or even prepare you for that conversation. When death seems like it's knocking at the door, and I can tell you that conversation for me and for my dad, we didn't even expect it's out of the blue. And isn't that the way you hear it most of the times when people are facing death? It's that, man, they were so young. You see, it's this idea that it's not not now, not here. How do you prepare to go? How ready are you to go? Let's look. Revelation 16. Revelation 16. Whoop, uh-oh, I'm caught. Revelation 16, we're continuing our study, the seven blessings of Revelation. Something you need to know about this as you hopefully turn in your Bibles, check your device, Revelation 16. Revelation is written by John, the beloved disciple. And within this, it is apocalyptic literature, which means it is highly symbolic. There are a lot of things that are difficult to understand. And what you will see as we begin to read this, you'll see some of the imagery that he draws from is actually back in the Old Testament with Moses and the plagues. You'll see it very soon. So it's a lot of symbolic language. Also within this, you also have an audience he's writing to who are Christian believers who are facing intense persecution. These guys are, they're facing the persecution probably under Domitian or Nero, burning burning Christians because they will not submit. They will continue to follow their God. None of us have faced this kind of opposition. So he's writing with that in mind. Now, if we can, I want to engage this. They asked me to preach twice. The first one I got was the Antichrist. The second one I got is Armageddon. Gee, you want to talk about being prepared. Here we go. (laughs) Revelation 16. Revelation 16, let me read it and we'll just kind of walk through some of this. Verse one says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, seven is a number of completion, seven angels, go pour out the seven bowls of God's wrath on the earth. You can already see imagery from the get-go. The first angel went and poured out his bowl on the land and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast in its image. So it seemed, or worshiped its image. It seems like you can think of sores, you can already see this plague idea going back to Moses, Exodus, all that. Something we need to remember in light of this too is in Exodus, when the plagues come, the plagues come for two primary reasons. First one is God wants to make himself known to those people. I want them to know who I am. The second one was a direct judgment against those gods, bringing justice to what they were doing. So you have two main reasons. He's gonna repeat some of that here as we read it, so keep going. That was the first one. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea and it turned to blood. We've heard that one before, haven't we? Exodus again. The next plague there. The third angel poured out his bowl on the rivers and springs and turned those to blood. Look at what the angel says in verse 5. I heard him say, you are just in these judgments, O holy one. We see the idea of justice and judging come right here for something that has been done. What was that? Verse six, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets. And you've given them blood to drink as they deserve. Verse eight, fourth angel pours out his bowl on the sun and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues. But they refused to repent and glorify him. And you look at this, God pours out this pain and suffering with it almost seems like a hope that you will come back to me. You will acknowledge who I am. You will change your ways and come back. Keep reading. Keep reading. The fifth angel pours out his bowl on the throne of the beast. And again, it's all these judgments coming against people who are not believers who are following this beast and his kingdom. It's plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in agony, cursed God of heaven because of their pains and their sores. But again, they refused to repent of what they had done. Verse 12, the sixth angel poured out his bowl on the river Euphrates. Its waters dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east And then you see these impure and demonic spirits, they come together for this great battle that we see in verse 16. They gathered the kings together to the place in Hebrew that is called Armageddon, or a place that we would say is Megiddo. This is a place that has a lot of different Old Testament references and things that had happened in biblical past. 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, it is done And then there came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. This earthquake brings down mountains, splits kingdoms in thirds, and then you have hundred pound hailstones fall out of the sky. Now, would I love to go into all of these and tell you what they mean? Yeah, if I knew what they all meant, that'd be great. But what I do think this text brings out to me, one big question that I want us to deal with is this, is how, and this is a question I've heard before, is how can you have a loving God who is also a wrathful God? And this question is actually used to say, this is why I will not believe in your God. I don't want a wrathful God, I want a loving God. You see this, how do we rationalize the two of those things? because they seem inconsistent at surface value. So here's what I would recommend we do looking at that question. I wanna start with this. This is a quote from Michelle Tepper. She said this, almost all of our problems with relation to God stem from a flawed view of his nature and his character. In other words, when you have a puzzle like this that doesn't seem to fit, the problem is our understanding, not who God is. What do we know about God? So let's go there, our understanding of God. First things we know, based on not only our belief, but also what science has said, is that the earth itself is not eternal. It had a point in which it was non-existent, and something had to cause it to come into existence. And from that, the beginning of time started. Now, we would say that cause was God. That means God has to be outside of time, eternal, very powerful, and we would say intelligent. Look how he put it together. So we know this from the beginning of the book of Genesis. We see those three characteristics come out quick. Now keep coming. Why then does God make man? A huge question we're going to blitz through, unfortunately. The Greeks thought that the gods made man so we could serve and provide what he needs, the gods need. I would say if a god needs something, it's not a god. God in himself is self-sufficient. He creates man. It's the same reason we have kids. I don't have kids because they're going to provide for me. My kids eat me out of house and home. Anybody else? That's right, Steds. I see you looking. I saw Lydia. You get the idea. They eat me out of house and home. I didn't have them because they, they provide for me this great thing. What it is is I love my wife, and I wanted to share that love with them. I think it's the same true as with God. He creates man for a loving relationship with him. God is love, we say. And he creates man with that loving intent. Now here's the thing: in order for a loving relationship to take place, there has to be a choice. You can't force love. You can't force it. What does God do in the garden? He creates how many trees? Probably many, but two, and two really important ones: tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He gives man a choice, and like a good parent, he warns him about that choice, because we also know this about choices. Some are good and some are bad, correct? C.S. Lewis, When we look at this, C.S. Lewis wrote it this way. He said, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way and cannot really get rid of that. He is, what he's saying here is we all have this idea across all cultures and times of what is right and what is wrong behavior. And the thing that dictates between those two is what he calls God's moral law. With me. What happens when you break the law? Some of you know this all too well. When you break the law, you get punished. We call that justice, don't we? The law dictates what's right and what's wrong. Justice is the punishment deserved. And wrath, in this case, if you look at how it's defined, wrath is anger exhibited in punishment. Now, that all sounds heady and very good. Let's bring it down with flesh on it. I used to coach middle school basketball, Used to coach. And I can remember in one game, our best player driving, it seemed like a fast break. He's got three defenders coming at him. He goes right at them, dribbling right at him. As he gets in the crowd, you hear the smack of skin. You see them break out lead pipes and they go for his knees. And then they trip him and no, that's not what he did. But then you hear the smack of skin. As a coach, I hear this, I see this going on. And I'm waiting for what? I'm waiting for a whistle. I didn't hear a whistle. So now, this is the wrath part. I'm angry. Why? Why am I angry? Why am I upset? Because, going back to the moral law that dictates how you play the game... I know they did something that's a foul and they deserve to be punished for that foul in order for justice to be served. But the man whose job is to initiate and call that did not call it. So then I take it upon myself to get off the bench and walk with him for a little bit. (laughs) And I begin to tell him the wrong he has done and the sin he has committed. In which he begins to tell me this motion. So I sit back down. You get the idea. You see, you can feel it. Now let's go just a step further. I was at this ministry um, doing some time away, just spending some time with God, and I knew the owners of it. We sat down for a meal. And they told me that one, they had this one lady come in, and basically a pastor's wife brought this girl in and said, would you, would you keep her for the weekend, feed her, take care of her? It was very Good Samaritan-esque, right? I said, yeah, we'll do that. So they took her in and got to know her a little bit. And the lady said to her, I just, I don't feel like I belong here. And they're like, well, why do you feel that way? She goes, well, because my profession, I'm a, I'm a prostitute. Like, okay, well, just so you know, um, you're always welcome here. I just want you to know and be ready that, you see, we, we have a lot of ministers that come in here and I just don't want you to feel uncomfortable. She goes, oh, ministers, they're our worst clients. Now, it gets worse, see? Then they started talking to her saying, how do you get into something like this? And she said, well, you see this tattoo on my arm back here? That's like the branding, or we would say, that the mark of my pimp who owns me. When I was a little girl, 10 years old, my daddy took me to this man and sold me to him. 10 years old. Now, my guess is within you right now, you feel hopefully two things. First off, you feel sorrow for the, what happened to this young lady And at the same time, my hope is you also feel anger at gentlemen who did not act as gentlemen should. And why do you feel that way? Because you know there is a moral law that dictates this is right behavior and this is wrong. And you probably want exactly what I want. I want justice, God. I want punishment for what has happened. And you can feel, I feel the anger and the anguish. Don't you? And you're saying, how could you not have a loving God in wrath? Listen to this quote. It is lengthy, but it is good. From Timothy Keller, he says this The problem is that you want a loving God, you have to have an angry God. Think about it loving people can get angry in spite of their love, not in spite of it, but because of it. In fact, the more closely and deeply you love people in your life, the angrier you get. Have you noticed that when you see people who are harmed or abused, you get mad? If you see people abusing themselves, you get mad at them out of love. Your senses of love and justice are activated together, not in opposition. If you see people destroying themselves or destroying other people, you don't, and you don't get mad, it's because you don't care. You're too absorbed in yourself, too cynical, too hard. The more loving you are, the more ferociously angry you will be at whatever harms your beloved. And the greater the harm, the more resolute your opposition. When we think of God's wrath, we usually think of God's justice, and that's right. Those who care about justice get angry when they see justice being trampled upon. And we should expect a perfectly just God to do the same but we don't ponder how much his anger is also a function of his love and goodness. The Bible tells us that God loves everything he has made. That's one of the reasons he's angry at what's going on in his creation. He is angry at anything or anyone that is destroying the people and the world he loves. His capacity for love so much greater than ours, the cumulative extent of evil in the world so vast that the word wrath doesn't really do justice to how God rightly feels when he looks at the world. So it makes no sense to say, I don't want a wrathful God, I want a loving God. If God is loving and good, he must get angry at evil, angry enough to do something about it. Isn't that what we want? Here's what I honestly think is also one of our problems in relation to this question, is we think highly, more highly of ourselves than we ought, and because of this, we have a lower view of God. We forget that God is also holy, pure, and set apart. Just to illustrate this idea, there was a survey that was conducted of prisoners in England, right? Prisoners in England. These guys had been convicted of either violence against people or of robbery, They were asked to compare their standing relative to other prisoners and non-prisoners, all right? They're comparing themselves to those in prison and not. And these nine character traits, such as kindness, generosity, self-control, morality, and get this, law-abidingness. No surprise, the vast majority of the participants rated themselves as better than the average inmate on all traits. I'm better than everybody else in here. Most interesting is that when the inmates compared themselves to people not in prison, they still rated themselves as better on all dimensions except one in which they rated themselves as equal, and that is in law abidingness. Does that not strike you? You're saying you're just as good as everybody else, but you're in prison. We think more highly of ourselves than we ought, we think we are good. And maybe it's in good in comparison to everything else around us. I have, maybe you can sympathize with me here, I have three white undershirts, one of which I'm wearing right now. I've had them for a long time. Maybe you have the same, I don't know. But I have three white undershirts, and I can tell that they're white because when I look in the drawer with all the other colored shirts there, that one's white. Got it. I can pick it out. But when I buy a new white dress shirt and try to wear it under that, I'm like, oh my gosh, is that, I think it's ivory. Maybe it's beige. Why is it gray? Why are there three colors on a white shirt? You see what I'm saying? In comparison with something that is so pure, this does not look so good. Or the words of Isaiah 64 our righteousness is like filthy rags. Our righteousness, we think we're good, we're not good. In comparison to God, this is a God who was so pure, so holy that in the Old Testament, they couldn't even walk into his presence because they would die. That kind of holiness, I can't imagine. So when I say that I'm good, I have this high view of myself and a low view of God and what I need to do is flip that. Flip the script on this. A higher view of God, a lower view of me and then it magnifies, honestly, the sin. There's a missionary who tried to explain this idea of God's wrath to a cabbie as he's driving through this town. The, the cab driver just couldn't get it. And he said to the, the cab driver, he said, well, let me, let me ask you this question. Suppose I just reach up and, boom, pop you in the back of the head. What are you going to do to me? I'm going to kick you out of my cab. Okay. Say I go up to this group of guys over here. I go up to one of them, pop him on the face. What do you think is going to happen? Well, they're probably going to beat you. <laughs> Good job. Great choice. Okay, let's say they do. What if I go over to this police officer and I go, wham, sock him in the face? What's gonna happen then? He will beat you, and then he's gonna throw you in prison. What if I go up to the king of this country and I go, ah, wham, he's gonna kill you? You see, he goes, the, the sin itself never changed, but the person I offended and his authority did, and look at the consequence because of it. Justice served. Now, here's also a difference. Our idea of justice and God's idea is different. Anybody watch the new James Bond film? Nobody. Nobody in this room? Okay. Oh, wait, I see you. Was it good? Do you like it? You think it's pretty good? I like all James Bond films. But in this one, what I've liked so far with these is there's a part where you see the bad guy, right? You see the bad guy, he's doing something, he's, and you, you know. Mm-mm-mm. And what do you want to happen to this guy? You want, you, want the right, you want the right thing to happen. You want justice to be served, but I don't just want justice. I want vengeance. I want a little bit of suffering in there. And then I want him to suffer and then kill him. That's what you want, but that's not God. God is just. So if you look at this, even in here, it says that they killed your prophets. What is this? verse? Da, 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 da. Let's go verse six. They've shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you've given them blood to drink. Wait a second. God, what I want you to do is if they've killed your people, kill them. And God just says, no. And what that shows me about God, he says they suffer. And again, it's the idea of repentance. There was one commentator who said the whole purpose of this chapter is so that people will repent and recommit to God. His justice is not vengeance. His justice is just. And what he wants is to pull people back. So if you look at this, he's waiting. And that's why I would say God is, is not only patient, but he's compassionate. He's patiently Compassionate. Waiting for anybody, please come back. Please come back. Because we know at the very end of this, a time is coming when it's over. And the last thing we know in all of this, in light of everything, is this one. God is merciful. You cannot understand what mercy is unless you have justice. Justice is the punishment. Mercy is the punishment I didn't receive. You see how they go hand in hand. And we want mercy, So let me ask, why does this matter to us? Well, the blessing says this in 1615. It says, look, I come like a thief. Look, I come like a thief. And we would say, Jesus said this, I come like a thief in the night. The timing, you're never gonna know. You're never gonna know when it's over. You're never gonna know when death is at the door. But he says, blessed is the one who stays awake and remains clothed. So as not to go naked and be shamefully exposed, blessed is the one who is, as the Boy Scouts may say, prepared. I heard one one preacher say this: God is making a new creation, and if He's going to make it new, He's got to get rid of the stuff that corrupted it to begin with. He's got to get rid of sin. There's two ways that this happens. This may surprise you. The first one is what we talked about, where mercy and all of it meet. It's the central point of Christianity is the cross, and more importantly, the resurrection of Christ. It is where our sin and God's love and his justice and his wrath and his mercy and his compassion and his grace all come. And if you want to get rid of sin, God's saying, I will take it to make you new. It's one option. But he said the other option is eradication. I have to remove This is what we'd call hell. And one day, and we say this question, are you ready? And the question ends with to go. I don't know about you, but before I leave the house or go on any trip, I make sure I got clothes on. Probably a good thing. Here he says, are you clothed? In this case, look what Galatians 3, 26 and 27 say. So in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you were baptized into Christ. Have what? Clothed yourself with him. Are you ready to go? Now, here's what I also know. And my hope is you've made a decision that you will follow him. And if you haven't, for, I, I can't stress it enough. Please, please, please do it. But I also know this. My dad, when we found out about the quadruple bypass, we started, our conversations changed. You see, when, when death is in the picture... When you don't know how much time you have left, it changes really how you live, doesn't it? Tim McGraw, live like you're dying. Anybody? No fans? Okay, whatever. Country music, I get it. <laughs> but here it is it changes the way you live, doesn't it? Before my dad had his operation, it was over the summer, we were gonna be gone at CIY. I went over. I can remember the conversation in the, the parking lot as I picked up the kids. Ashley took them, actually, and I stayed behind. I remember in the gravel driveway talking to my father and telling him everything I wanted him to hear because I just didn't know if I was gonna have more time. And I told him, dad, this is how much I loved him. I told him how much I look up to him and how much I want to be like him as I grow older. I told him everything I possibly could and just to end it all, as we're tears soaked, as we're hugging each other, and I told him, don't worry, I've got mom. I'll take care of her. I know that is one of the biggest concerns: is what are you going to do with my loved ones? You see how the presence of death impacts your current life now. So not only do we need to be prepared to go, as in meet our maker, we need to be prepared to go now. You see, he says the one who stays awake. If you look at that context of when he references it in Luke, he says the master. When, when the master's gone. But when he comes back, wouldn't it be blessed to see his servants doing what he's asked them to do? And right now, we have to come to the conclusion not only of who Jesus is am I following him and am I ready to die but then am I dying to myself daily, each and every day? Has it impacted the way I live? You have Halloween coming. Tonight, for some of you, and are you gonna be there to greet your neighbors, maybe give out candy, to be a blessing to them? Because the cross of Christ impacts how I behave now. Think about your marriage. Think about your kids. Are you training the next generation? You see, it impacts every aspect of your life. And for those who have that assurance, when death comes knocking, this is how you can answer that call. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O my soul. And Lord, haste that day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as the scroll. The trump shall resound, the Lord shall descend. And even so, it is well with my soul. Let's pray. Father, to be prepared to go. I see the blessing of being ready. I want to be found ready in all ways, not only to meet you, but to live for you today. Each and every moment, surrender to you. I pray, God, that that's how I would live, and I pray for our people here who have professed faith as well, that they would live that way. But I pray more importantly for those who haven't made the decision, God, because one day it will come, and they will stand before you, and the question is, will they be ready? I pray that they would bless us in this place and thank you so much for the cross of christ it's in your son's name amen thank you for listening to the podcast today it's our desire for you to grow in your understanding of christ's love as you partner with us in our mission to love all people to new life in christ if you have any questions about our church or like to plan a visit with us go to plainfieldchristian.com If you would like to receive our podcast every week, we encourage you to subscribe to the Plainfield Christian Church Podcast on whatever podcasting platform you prefer. Have a great week.